0: Welcome to Let it Lopate at Large. I'm Let it Lopate. A new book titled Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections, consists of 22 chapters written by over 40 organizer authors, looks at the crucial roles that grassroots leaders and organizers played in the 2020 elections. It's edited by Max Elbaum, Linda Burnham, and Maria Pavlet and published by OR Books. And it brings Max Elbaum to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thanks very much. Glad the, to be here.
0: The selections in this book suggest that the November 2020 election was arguably the most consequential since the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln, and grassroots leaders and organizers played crucial roles in the, uh, the uh, contention for the presidency and control of both House of Congress. Were some of the lessons learned forgotten before the recent midterm elections? Well,
1: uh, some of them were learned by different people. uh, And uh, some of the people who learned the lessons uh, deeply, I don't think, forgot them. And uh, the kind of groups that were written, who authored chapters in the book, or whose individuals all authored chapters in the book, embrace those uh, lessons and use them to good effect in 2022 especially in states like Pennsylvania Arizona and Nevada. Well, on, but of course go ahead. But of course others uh, didn't pay attention to those lessons and things did not go as well in other places.
0: Well on the ground efforts mobilized a record voter turnout in 2020 but we didn't see that in this recent election. So did people just forget what they'd learned in, in, in certain instances?
1: Well, I think there was a record turnout in a number of states. Oh. Uh, the, uh, it, it was a base election. Uh, the country, as everybody knows, is polarized. And uh, everybody was predicting that the base of the anti maga Front, the base of those who were opposed to right-wing authoritarianism, was going to stay home because they were disillusioned with how much had been gained since 2020 uh, in the fight against right wing racist authoritarianism. But that base turned out in much stronger numbers, especially young people and in communities of color. Uh, And that's why things went as uh, well as they did. And the stalemate that came into effect in 2020 uh, still continues.
0: Well, in the 2020 election, the anti-right-wing coalitions faced challenges posed by the pandemic, economic crises, voter suppression, protests over the racist police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. Uh, But that also contributed to the largest voter turnout in U.S. history, 81 million votes for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, and the Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate.
1: Well, uh, 2020 was a huge victory. I mean, the backlash against the gains of the 1960s has been intensifying uh, since a few days after the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965 went through Nixon's Southern strategy, Reagan, neoliberalism and his assault on the labor movement and on communities of color, birtherism, the attempt to discredit the first black president of the United States. This has been a 60-year uh, attempt to roll back the struggles that broke Jim Crow, revitalized the anti-war movement, the modern women's movement, modern LGBTQ movement. Mm-hmm. So with Trump's election in 2016 and Bernie's uh, Bernie's campaign, uh, a lot of social justice groups saw the importance of the electoral arena and decided to bring their social justice values into the uh, electoral engagement. And that led to uh, working with voters and trying to mobilize voters who have been neglected by the leaderships of both parties. Uh, Record turnouts in 2018 and 2020, uh, and uh, his history of midterms was supposed to be that the uh, party in power was going to lose control of the Senate, lose control of the House by substantial margins, governorships and so on. And that didn't happen. Uh, we shouldn't overstate what was gained, but it was a big step uh, to stymie my, uh, the right wing's effort to, to prepare the ground uh, for complete political power in 2024
0: one of the essays in the in the book uh, by Linda Burnham uh, in it uh, she interviews leaders from new georgia project black voters matter georgia alliance georgia alliance for latino rights and showing up for racial justice people who are working to mobilize black latino and white voters and georgia's undergoing rapid demographic shifts uh, but um stacy adams abram's future looked promising after her campaign for governor against Brian Kemp in 2018, uh, she was defeated uh, pretty resoundingly in the recent rematch. What happened?
1: Yeah, it's what a complicated, happened to all
0: that organizing.
1: It's a complicated story. Uh, the apparatus that Stacey has built in Georgia. Uh, I think the title of that chapter is "Change the State, Flip a State, and Shock the Nation." Uh, in 2018, in 2020. Uh, That led to the victories in uh, the two Senate runoffs, as well as Georgia flipping uh, to the Democratic column Biden over Trump in 2020. Uh, That was unprecedented. And for the first time, I think in a long time, a lot of progressives around the country started to look to the South and see the importance of it and what could be gained with that kind of operation. Uh, 2022... Uh, comes along. And that uh, same apparatus, even the even in the face of greater voter suppression uh, laws than existed in 2020 that were pushed through in the state, uh, managed to get uh, Warnock uh, again uh, over Herschel Walker, who was a terrible candidate. And they're now in a runoff. Stacey ran behind Warnock. And there's a lot of discussion about why exactly that is. Uh, it may have to do with the, the question of the difference between uh, the Senate and the governorship. Uh, it has to do with the fact that the governor candidate Kemp was a stronger candidate than Herschel Walker. It has to do with voter suppression. And it has to do with the massive campaign that's been targeting Stacey Abrams for years in Georgia, uh, trying to undermine her, which was not as strong against uh, Reverend Warnock.
0: And uh, Herschel Walker suggests that it's a matter of a battle between werewolves and vampires. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing that he did as well as he did considering all of the, the negative attention he received. So what, well, what are the lessons to be learned from what's happened in Georgia? Or are there lessons? Or is it, does it remain— a complicated situation in Georgia and some of the other states that we'll be discussing?
1: Well, I think there's a few important lessons. Uh, the the, the main themes that come through many of the chapters in the book is that uh, the community-based organizations, the state-based power organizations, the labor organizations, the organizations and communities of color that were the most successful are the ones that have dug in They do year-round organizing. They have a strategy to build toward governing power in particular states. Uh, And they don't restrict themselves to electoral work. Uh, They view electoral work as one component of a long-term strategy to build up progressive power in a particular state and and the different localities within it. So part of the lesson is it's a long-term struggle uh, and you have to work with Uh, in the electoral arena, but also in other arenas. Uh, A theme that comes in uh, in many chapters in the book is people who are considered low propensity voters by the political class, all the consultants and so on. They're really low investment voters. No one invests in them. No one is there year round. People parachute in every couple of years, ask for their vote, then disappear. And the government doesn't deliver anything to them. Even when candidates win, they don't deliver to them. So the people uh, to be motivated to vote and take part in that struggle have to be connected to organizations that are there year round and that are fighting for their well-being, their material conditions, their health care, their jobs, housing, uh, environmental racism, equality, all those different issues, uh, those kinds of organizations and organizations who do that uh, will, over time, gain influence and gain success. It's not a one-shot deal uh, treating each election as its own emergency situation. But it takes years to build that kind of thing up. Uh, And in 2020, uh, some of the most success success was by groups that had been doing that for the last five or 10 years. And there were a lot of organizations that were just starting that influenced by Bernie's campaign and the success of AOC and the squad in 2018. So uh, it takes a while for those uh, that kind of long term investment to pay off. Uh, And uh, one of the lessons of that is in states and in sections of the labor movement or in particular communities where that kind of organization doesn't exist, it's time to have to build those and dig in for a long-haul fight.
0: One section of the book is headed, Bernie, Democratic Socialism and the Primary Battles. Hasn't the word socialism been used against candidates of the left? Uh, and sure. hasn't it been suggested that some that Bernie stop using the phrase "Democratic Socialist" and just call himself a Democrat?
1: Well, of course, uh, opinion, opinions about that are all over the place on the left. There's, as everyone knows, there's differences about an electoral strategy. Uh, I think that in the chapter that is about Bernie's campaign specifically two or three people uh, who were high up in the campaign assessed uh, what Bernie did right in 2020 what they thought he did wrong um, and uh, what would have been more effective. Uh, I think some of the key lessons there were uh, Bernie's messaging on economic issues, his targeting of the billionaire class, uh, all that was very effective. Uh, the people who were uh, in that chapter thought that on issues of fighting racism and uh, sexism, uh, he too often pivoted too fast uh, back to a purely economic analysis and didn't spend enough time in his messaging uh, to fully embrace the struggles for racial and gender justice for particular audiences. Um, On the other hand, uh, they commended Bernie uh, for being uh, able to reach people uh, in all sectors Uh, talking about unity and positioning himself as a strong working class pole within a broad front in defense of democracy and opposed to the authoritarian right. Um, He is a democratic socialist. I don't think it would have um, paid off. He's had that label uh, for 50 years Uh, And to stop stop using it now, I think would undermine one of Bernie's great strengths, which is what you see is what you get. Uh, He's regarded as much more straightforward and consistent than almost any other politician in the country, certainly left of center. Uh, So, uh, other than the new generation, the squad and some of the other new progressives that are being elected. So uh, my own opinion is he shouldn't run away from that label. But of course, uh, he's baited about it. The entire Democratic Party is baited about it. They call Biden a socialist. So, uh, you know, at at a certain point, you have to stand up and fight.
0: But wasn't Biden really the fallback candidate, the one who was seen as... Uh, the one with the least baggage.
1: Um, well, different. I, I don't people. mean well,
0: that necessarily in a positive way. Just you know, he was the the most middle of the road of all the candidates.
1: Well, in twenty, you know, there are two things about why Biden prevailed in the Democratic Party uh, primaries uh, in twenty twenty. Uh, one is that the infrastructure of the progressive movement was simply not as strong as the infrastructure of the centrists within the Democratic Party. Uh, Bernie pushed things really far, but underneath him, there wasn't the kind of organization and build up that had existed uh, with, you know, that had atrophied over many, many years in the progressive side. It was only being rebuilt uh, so that Bernie was at a disadvantage from the beginning Uh, and his popularity was great. Uh, that was a big boost, but he ran well ahead of the infrastructure that was underneath him, which is to his credit as a campaigner and the kind of campaign he built. The second thing is big trunks of the electorate uh, of the Democratic Party electorate or the potential electorate to vote against the Republicans was freaked out about Donald Trump uh and their main consideration was who was going to be able to beat trump uh especially black voters in the south uh who have right in the face of jim crow they have the strongest historical memory of what jim crow was like uh and bernie didn't have that much of a presence there Mm. Uh, he did some work there, but his campaign was not as extensive. And the Biden people had been around for many, many years. And even people who missed, thought Bernie's ideas were good didn't believe that he could beat uh, that he could beat Trump. Uh, and that was their main consideration. So when Clyburn endorsed uh, Biden, people fell in line. A lot of people in the South fell in line behind that and went that way. Uh, and it's a lesson for us in the progressive side, which is it takes years to be part of struggles and communities, uh, be there day to day, be a presence. It's not just about being having better ideas and saying our ideas are better. Uh, even if they are, we have to build up confidence that the progressives can govern, that the progressives can win elections, that the progressives can deliver. Um, so I think there's some real lessons there, some hard lessons in the reality of what it takes to uh, change politics in this country.
0: My guess is Max Elbaum. Uh- Co-author with Linda Burnham and Maria Puppet of Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. It is published by OR Books, and this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, the book's title comes from a speech by Frederick Douglass, uh, which uh, begins, Power Concedes Nothing Without a Demand. So how do you see that as applying to what you're writing about here or what what you're publishing here?
1: Uh, It's a great speech. Uh, In the introduction to the book, Linda, Marie, and I encourage everybody to read the whole speech. Um, You get what you demand and what you fight for successfully. Uh, There's no other way. Uh, it's it, it's a moral appeals uh, can generate can galvanize your base, but people with power and privilege don't give it up without a fight. Uh, and that's what uh, that's what matters. You have to fight. And in the speech, Douglas says the struggle may be a moral one. It may be a physical one, but it will be a struggle. Uh, I think we can see that, uh, you know, it's a, there's an interesting way to look at that just with what's happened right now. There's all these Republicans who are saying, oh, we have to move past Trump. Trump is a loser. They didn't care that Trump uh, was a racist, that Trump tried to mobilize an insurrection, that he tried to stay in office even after losing an election, that he was lying, that he committed all kinds of different uh racist and sexist policies that he did absolutely no they stood by while all of that was going on that was okay with them but when trump uh, looked like he was responsible for the republicans losing certain elections that they thought uh, he should have that the republicans should have won all of a sudden there's this oh my goodness we have to move on from trump and that tells us something about what moves our opposition uh, it's not just appeals, facts, good sense, it's a fight. And when you win something in a fight, uh you make a difference.
0: Arizona is another fascinating story uh Caesar. Mendoza of Living for United Change in Arizona, Lucha, writes that in his state, the Democratic Party too often dismissed Latinx voters as low propensity or infrequent voters, so it made little investment. And he writes that when our community leaders would urge the Democratic Party to invest in our communities, they ignored us. Why do you think that was?
1: Uh, because the mainstream of the Democratic Party over the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, has, is a party that's beholden to the capitalist class, the corporate interests, real estate interests, and all kinds of things like that. Uh, to the extent they were more beholden to working class people uh, through the New Deal era and for a period after World War II, uh, that has faded with time. That's been part of the success of the right wing backlash against the 1960s. Um, Lucha is a very interesting organization. Uh, It was formed in 2010 by young Latinos uh, in the wake at that time. Uh, Arizona was the center of gravity of the most anti-immigrant legislation in the country. And they started to build up their political power. Uh, and one among their main campaigns in the t- 2010s uh, <clears throat> was the campaign to get rid of Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Maricopa County.
0: But in even the- earlier, even earlier, yeah. uh, they began self-organizing to defeat SB 1070 the anti-immigrant show-me-your-papers law that allowed widespread racial profiling for anyone suspected of being undocumented. Uh, And uh, it was seen as part of a a racist assault by the Arizona GOP legislature and governor. So in 2011... Russell Pierce, the Republican Senate speaker and architect of that law, was recalled. That before they ousted um, Maricopa's sheriff, Joe Arpaio. So this has uh, this been a process. And yet Arizona still remains a, a, a state that can go in either direction, as we've seen in this election
1: yeah it's a tough country to change and uh, lucha uh, built its power it built its strength it was responsible uh, for a good effect uh, in 2018 and 2020 uh, and 2022 uh, they registered they also, elected, they also elected their own people in i think they're summation. Uh, well, I was on a call the other day. There's about 16 or 18 candidates statewide that come out of their own movement. They're grooming their own candidates now. Um, and they're in a complicated relationship with the leadership of the Democratic Party. They unite with them uh, to uh, elect Hobbes and Kelly and beat the election deniers that were running for governor, senator, and secretary of state. And then they contend with them in terms of what's the direction of the state and for all kinds of offices along the way.
0: And they've registered almost a million Latinx people to vote. Uh, But uh, in the the recent midterms, forgive me for keeping on bringing this up, Katie Hobbs barely beat Carrie Lake for governor. In fact, Carrie Lake... Uh, is still contesting it, and uh, there's even the threat of violence in Arizona. It's kind of scary.
1: It's plenty scary. I mean, uh, you know, the the backlash, uh, the appeal to white grievance, the line that says that the traditional America is being replaced Uh, by a conspiracy by Jews, people of color, immigrants uh, to replace the real Americans with people who will be beholden to the, you know, world communist conspiracy.
0: Wait, the real Americans were talking about Native Americans, no?
1: Yes, that's (laughs) certainly on this show, that's who we'd be talking about. But that's not who the right wing is talking about. And they've built a very powerful apparatus over the last 20, 30 years. The Federalist Society has done systematic work since their formation in 1982. And they now dominate the federal judiciary and control the Supreme Court. They've got a a, a, a propaganda apparatus with Fox News uh, that is unmatched by anything left of center. And Tucker Carlson goes on and talks about the Great Replacement Theory uh, every week. Uh, They have deep pocket billionaires. Plus, the fossil fuel industry is financing the Republican Party. uh, And the entire party is virtually uh, climate change deniers now. So this is this is a tough country to change. Um, And the people on that side of the fence, although it's driven by these right wing billionaires and the uh, class that, was, sees it as uh, sees progressive change as a threat to their profits. There's a social base. they've built a mass organization in white evangelical churches uh, and a social base that's threatened by the changes in the changes since the 1960s, the idea of so-called traditional racial and gender hierarchies. Um, and that's a tough that's, that's a tough country to change uh, and it's extremely scary. Uh, You know, this is a country that has only been a bourgeois democracy for 50 years, plus 15 years under reconstruction. For 400 and some years, uh, African-Americans and other peoples of color couldn't, essentially couldn't vote in the United States. Um, So it's not a surprise that these, uh, it's so difficult. People agree with us. There are many people in the Trumpist camp who might agree on any specific issue with a progressive point of view, minimum wage or something like that. That's important. And that leads to class contradictions in their ranks, which we have to take advantage of. But to underestimate the grip of that kind of perspective uh, in states across the country, uh, that's come back at us, uh, you know, since since 1619.
0: How do you explain the, the uh, conflicts between the various subgroups, how African-Americans, for example, have, have been engaging in anti-Semitic behavior and uh, in some cases anti-Asian behavior? And all, all the groups uh, seem to, at one point or another, snipe at each other. Are they? Is it all because they all feel uh, – that they want their little piece of the action?
1: No, 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 no community, whether it's a racial community defined by race or by gender, or by sexuality, uh, by geography, none are monolithic and there's different currents within each, uh, within each community. Uh, (laughs) And so those different currents represent different political views and different class interests within each community. Uh, So none of them are monolithic. Uh, You have the Herschel Walkers, you have the Tim Scotts from South Carolina, uh, and you also have the uh, Reverend Warnocks, the Stacey Abrams, uh, the the Mandela Barnes, uh, and all the uh, the Angela Davises uh, in the black community. So there's a fight uh, over that. these ideas uh, scapegoating different groups, playing them against each other—that's uh, uh, that's been around for a long time. Uh, it's propagated by those in power. And uh, people's day to day experience uh, in many situations puts them uh, rubbing up against each other and there's inevitable conflicts. And it's a lot of work to form multiracial unity, to build bridges. Uh, There's organizations out there uh, doing the work, uh, but it doesn't happen spontaneously. I mean, look what just what just happened in Los Angeles. the explosion when uh, three of the top leaders, including the leader of the Labor Federation, uh, all that racist, anti-black and anti Oaxacan anti-indigenous uh, remarks uh, that was recorded and leaked. And these people, uh, several of them had progressive credentials, had fought for many positive uh, struggles over the years. So it's a, con- it's a constant fight. Uh, build- building unity, uh, you know, is, is difficult. It takes a lot of fine-grained work at the grassroots level uh, day in and day out.
0: One of the suggestions in the book is that uh, we should discuss race and racism openly, especially in white working-class communities, because <laughs> sweeping racism under the rug only hurts the movement and multiracial unity.
1: Yeah. um, The chapter by the people from Unite Here and how they mobilize their membership. And what does it mean to break down uh, divisions by race and other divisions uh, in the working class? I mean, this is a union that was devastated by the pandemic, the hospitality industry and mobilized their members, uh, took the lead in canvassing in 2020, developed the protocols for safe canvassing and made a big difference in Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania and some other states. Uh, there's a great picture on the cover of the book uh, from Unite Here, Canvasser. canvasser. Uh, surge uh, showing up for racial justice, uh, canvassing uh, in Georgia and Kentucky. Uh, in other states uh, in poor white communities, a largely white organization trying to organize white people against racism. Um, if you avoid the topic, it just leaves the field uh, to the right wing uh, messaging. and we we'll, have to take it head on.
0: We'll discuss the uh, the unite here uh, movement uh, a bit more after we take a little break. This is, Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Max Elbaum. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of Power Conceeds Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. And uh, we also – or you can become a sustaining member at $20 a month or more. And uh, we'd be happy to do that. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. But please make sure that you make that donation in the name of Leonard at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Max Elbaum, who is one of the editors of Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections, published by OR Books. Mr. Elbaum is a longstanding activist in the peace, anti-racist, and radical movement. He is the author of Revolution in the Air and currently an editor of Convergence, which uh, used to be called Organizing Upgrade. Have I left anything out?
1: Uh, No, no. That's, that's my short pile. yes. <laughs> okay,
0: well, let's uh, talk a bit about um, Unite Here. Um, uh, they made a major uh, effort to mobilize ver- voters in 2020 during the pandemic when 98% of their workers were laid off, and the workers worried that they might not survive another four years of Trump or the pandemic. Now, union resources took a, a huge— Hit, but uh, they they felt they had to react to um, a time of crisis. Now, but hadn't they already been building political power for decades?
1: Yeah, Unite here uh, had been uh, over the last years before the pandemic and before twenty sixteen. It was one of the faster growing unions. Uh, They took a lot of initiative and organizing. They would work with people uh, who were uh, radicals who would they would hire young radicals or young radicals would volunteer and go to work in hotels and restaurants as part of organizing campaigns. Uh, So they were one of the more aggressive unions uh, over the last period.
0: Now, they Uh, were mostly uh, involved in in uh, food. Uh,
1: It's the hospitality industry uh, in uh, Nevada. It's the casino workers. It's hotel workers. Uh, They've organized some people in airport workers. Uh, Some of it is restaurant workers. That kind of thing is their main base.
0: And they've been called the backbone of the Democratic Party coalition in Nevada.
1: In Nevada, because the casino industry is so dominant uh, in terms of uh, the economics of that state uh, and had employed so many workers, uh, Unite Here's success over the last decade or two in organizing those workers has made them a powerful force in state politics. Uh, And they also, you know, had a sophisticated leadership there. They uh, worked in tandem With the uh, political and economic fronts, Nevada is not a large state population wise. So when you organize tens of thousands of workers, uh, you have a significant population base uh, and you take part in state politics as well as in uh, the economic struggles with the casino orders.
0: In her essay... Uh, Andrea Cristina Mercado wrote that Florida is not just a swing state. It's an all-out battleground. But judging from the midterm election results, isn't it solidly Republican? The the Republicans won the gubernatorial Senate and House races despite the creation uh, uh, of the the Florida for All coalition, which – Includes a, a whole bunch of groups, Dream Defenders, Faith in Florida, Florida Immigrant Coalition, Jobs with Justice, the New Florida Majority, Organized Florida, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The-
1: yeah, Florida's gone backward. uh And uh, the progressives were not able to uh, mobilize enough strength uh, to turn the tide. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why Florida has gone backward. Uh, One part of it is the sophistication of the DeSantis regime uh, in Florida, Uh, the the level of repression, uh, the big victory in Florida a few years ago of felony felony re-enfranchisement, and then the undermining. uh, They won the state ballot initiative that was driven by progressives. Uh, It enfranchised over a million people. And then the state's legislature found a workaround Uh, It was under Republican control and they managed to pass uh, legislation that insisted that before those people could vote uh, who were reenfranchised, they had to pay off uh, any fines or debts that they had from their period of incarceration. And there was no way for the people to find out what that uh, might be, how much they owed, Uh, So that kind of thing, plus voter suppression. uh, And then the failure of the Democratic Party establishment to invest uh, in Miami, uh, even Miami, which had been a Democratic stronghold. This was a place where the red baiting uh, was extremely uh, effective. uh, And that's one to the Republican call. So uh, the people in Florida are fighting. Uh, They built their own capacity. but it's a huge state and they're not at the scale yet where they can be a dominant force in the state. I don't think actually there's more than a handful of states where the social justice progressive wing uh, is dominant or or even in contention to be dominant. Uh, You know, we were pretty much excluded uh, from any share of governing power for decades. Uh, from the, you know, since the demise of the Rainbow Coalition through the 90s uh, and then into the 2000s, the progressive electoral field, you can name a handful of candidates uh, and people who were in office. Um, So that has to be rebuilt. And obviously, it's stronger in some states than others. uh, But Florida hasn't been uh, hasn't been we haven't been able to swing that one yet.
0: Although there have been some victories, for example, voters passed a statewide referendum for a fifteen-dollar-an-hour minimum wage.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a disconnect. This, this. Uh, it, but if we're
0: talking about a state that has a large African American Latino community. Uh, uh, you would have thought they there would have been more organizing uh, in their uh, on their behalf.
1: Well, the Latino population in Florida is complicated politically because so uh, many is, of them
0: come from states uh, from countries that were uh, that were leftist, and so yes. they're, they're suspicious of of the left.
1: Right. So the uh, the Cuban uh, right wing Cuban population in Florida, uh, and then recent events and controversies around Venezuela, uh, and the consistent red baiting that comes with all of that. Uh, So the Latino population in uh, Florida is divided, uh, more divided than in many other places. It's divided everywhere, but it's more divided there. And this is one of the places where the Democratic Party mainstream, uh, you know, bought into the idea that because people were Latino, they would vote against uh, Republicans, Republicans, anti-immigrant and racist, uh, you know, brand. But that's not the case. You have to work those communities. You have to supply something and you have to combat the red baiting. uh, And you you can't just rely on these broad generalities. So the progressive wing that you mentioned, uh, that alignment of the immigrant coalition, Florida Rising, SEIU, they they have built Uh, an alignment between particularly the Haitian community in uh, Miami, uh, the uh, black community and sectors of the Latino community, especially Puerto Ricans uh, and uh, other Latinos. But it's not strong enough yet to carry the state.
0: It's usually assumed that African-Americans are largely going to vote for Democrats, and yet Looking at some of the people who have won elections around the country, uh, many of the Republicans were African-Americans. So is there a shift going on there?
1: Uh, I don't think there's a substantial shift, but the Republican Party uh, has a very sophisticated strategy. Uh, there have always been individuals in the African-American community or any other community uh, who are attracted to political power uh, and who can be used by political, powerful figures who want to put a black face in front of their particular program. Uh, and the Republican Party has gotten very sophisticated at that. And they recruit certain individuals and candidates and... Uh, And those candidates. So they've made a little bit of an inroad, I think, in 2020, uh, the vote uh, against the Republicans was something like 91 percent in the African-American community against um, against the Republicans uh, and higher among black women. Uh, So there's a gender gap, a small gender gap in the black community that's discussed uh, in the chapter on the black vote. Uh, There's one of the contributors to that chapter uh, is uh, a new organization. I forget the exact name right off the top, but it focuses on black men and working among black men uh, to build a progressive coalition, specifically progressive current there that would engage with other segments of the black community and the broad progressive community. So, again, I don't don't think uh, demographics is destiny. Uh, The Republican Party is making a big effort uh, to woo Asian-American voters, black voters uh, and Latino voters in different communities. Uh, South Texas, uh, Florida, especially among Latinos, those two places. So uh, there's nothing's going to fall our way. Just by, uh, you know, there isn't some, uh, some set of people out there that are just waiting for us to walk in the door and say, oh, we're progressives and all of them are going to shift in our direction. It takes political work. There's no other, uh, there's no substitute for organizing and being there year round and fighting on the issues that matter to people.
0: Max Elbaum. Co-editor with Linda Burnham and Maria Poblet of Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections, published by OR Books, is our guest today on Leonard Low Pit at Large. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Sometimes it looks like a state is moving in one direction and then it it just stops. For example uh, you, John Liss writes about uh, Virginia, uh, and according to him, he's of the new Virginia majority, a winning strategy must identify the forces comprising the majority voter bloc. Well, uh, Virginia was seemed to be moving, be almost becoming a, a blue state, and now it's purple or red again. So— what are some of the other factors that move things? Is it sometimes a, an action leads to a reaction?
1: I think that, uh, you know, Virginia is an interesting case. Uh, when Youngkin ran in the special election in 21 for governor, he portrayed himself as if he wasn't a Trumpist. And he seized on what, well, at the time, uh, he, it's tacked on critical race theory, on schools. Uh, and he ran a very sophisticated campaign, and the democratic his democratic opponent uh, b- basically only took took him on on one issue, which it, which was uh, you know you're 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 too close to Trump, you're a Republican, and that wasn't enough. Uh, the the campaign of the Democratic Party was not didn't counter the propaganda about critical race theory. Like uh, we talked about earlier, uh, mm-hmm. they tried to st- sidestep the issue. Um, it, it, the The Republican Party has a very, and especially since it's been taken over uh, by its extreme right wing that's been gestating for decades, it, they're ruthless and they're ready. They're fighting for political power. Uh, the Democratic Party leadership, the centrists, Even when they advocate good positions, which isn't all that often, uh, they've uh, lost some of the fighting edge that they that that particular sector had uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, They're complacent. Uh, They're in bed with the corporate interests. Uh, So it limits how they fight back. Uh, They're constantly seeking the so-called middle voter. And taking for granted uh, the constituencies that have been the hardest hit by the pandemic, by economic problems, by all the different injustices that this country uh, has built into its political and economic system.
0: Is that uh, that what's happening in Ohio, which used to be seen as pretty much a a safely blue state and now seems to be moving to the right? Or is it also... A matter of, in some cases, industry leaving a state which causes a crisis in, in a state like Ohio, Michigan being another example.
1: Yeah, it's both of the, it's those two things. You've hit the nail. They, they're interrelated. Uh, I think it's been a long time since Ohio's been a blue state, uh, even in the heyday of uh, working class political uh, influence. Well, a bunch Democratic
0: of Democratic Ohio. presidents come from Ohio, came
1: from Ohio. But uh, in any case, Pennsylvania, Ohio, deindustrialization had a massive impact politically. And the Democratic Party, as it's become the conventional wisdom. uh, So this is not strictly a left view. The Democratic Party did not react well to Mm deindustrialization instead of fighting for the interests of the working class and all the people who were hard hit by that. They went in the directions of NAFTA uh, and looking for a different social base among people who were more well off, high tech, suburban, you know, all of that kind of thing. Uh, and that left an opening and the right wing moved into that opening. Uh, that's where the militia groups have moved in. That's where all the different folks uh, on the right wing side have moved in with demagogy and talk globalization, co- cosmopolitanism uh, and attacking democratic elitism. Uh, so they uh, it's a combination of the changing political economy and then the response of the po- different political forces to that. What the progressives do Can make a big difference. So in Pennsylvania, which a lot had a lot of the same dynamics, we did better because the grassroots progressive groups there were were more developed than the ones in Ohio. Uh, Michigan has been an interesting thing. Michigan shifted much more to the left this this time around, Uh, and the Republican Party is divided, and that had to do both with some of the guts of some of the mainstream Democrats. I think we saw, you know, months ago, uh, there was that uh, big fuss about the woman state legislator who stood up there, a white woman, uh, middle class, saying, you know, she just wasn't going to take this uh, right-wing baiting anymore. She wasn't going to sell out people behind, you know, her politics. She wasn't going to let those who have suffering go behind. She made a great speech on the uh, state floor. And then there's some groups like We the People Michigan, uh, and others in Michigan that have been working the grassroots. So Michigan was a success story in 2022 uh, relative to uh, some of the other states. Yeah. My own home state of Wisconsin, it's been battered by deindustrialization. Milwaukee, my hometown, is now the most segregated racially and economically city in the United States. Really? And that's directly due to to the deindustrialization of what was once an industrial powerhouse Um, and the political response to that is starting to move a little bit. The current leadership of the Democratic Party is a little better than it's been for a while. But uh, the progressive current there is not yet strong enough to uh, move everything in that direction. But uh, the whole the whole deindustrialization period, combined with the uh, Model of neoliberalism and the acceptance of that during the Clinton years by the Democratic Party, of course, that's played a big role in U.S. politics moving in a bad direction, and it's a key part of what has to get reversed right now if we're going to start, a, if we're going to stop MAGA, and start a new progressive cycle.
0: One of the lessons that I got from this book is that political organizing has to be done all the time not just when there's an election cycle Um, is that something that uh, is is just being realized
1: uh i think unevenly uh you'd have to break that down to different uh different organizations and different currents Uh, i think there have been uh more among those who have engaged electoral work I think there is more of an appreciation now about the need to do it year round. And then there is, of course, much of the left uh, has not engaged elections up until 2015, 2016, uh, it does the year round work, but it hasn't mastered the electoral arena or, or figured out how to bring those social justice values into the electoral arena and link electoral work with its grassroots work on other issues. Uh, that a lot of that is really uh, a process that's only really <clears throat> taken off to scale since 2016. We uh, have Bernie, we have Bernie just Trump.
0: two minutes to go, or even less. Uh, you want to sum up what you think is
1: important here? I think what's important is that <clears throat> we are still in a stalemate uh, with forces. Uh, The right wing MAGA, which, despite the differences over candidates in the Republican Party, they want to destroy what's left of American democracy and introduce authoritarian rule. Jim Crow 2.0, push women back into the home. Climate denialism and an entire reactionary agenda. They're driving toward political power in 2024. 2024. They've been stymied a bit about what they hope to achieve in terms of control of the Senate, the House and everything else to prepare for a legal coup. And it's going to take a broad front of all of those who want to defend democracy and people's living standards to defeat them. A crucial role is going to be played by organizations that are building political power, independent political power, and are trying to do that within the context of defeating the far right, uh, ending the threat of of fascism in the United States for the foreseeable future and starting a new progressive cycle. Uh, I encourage people to read the words of the organizers themselves in this book and in other media, including when they're on WBAI. because it's the organizers on the ground that have the most to say about what's going to be effective to beat back MAGA and start a new progressive cycle. I
0: thank you so much for being on our show today. Max Elbaum, who is co-author with Linda Burnham and Maria Povlet of Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections, published by OR Books. Thank you again.
1: Thank you so
0: much. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at wbai.org, our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. And uh, as long as Elon Musk uh, is uh, not getting rid of us. You can hear us on Twitter or check us out on Twitter. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And we are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 because we need your help to keep bringing in this unique, in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard low at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. So why not make that call now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And we hope that you'll also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call BAI Buddy for for $10, $15, $20, however much you can feel comfortable giving. Um, uh, And it allows us to plan for the future. And right now, that is a serious problem. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Uh, So give us that call, 212-212. 209-2950. Go to give2wbai.org to to help keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial, that is 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow. We'll see you then.